Well, I am, wasn't supposed to be here today. So if you, if you remember, if you've been up on, on uh, some of my uh, goings-ons, I was supposed to have flown out on Friday to go to Ethiopia for 10 days. I was going to go with Paul Lindbergh and Talking Bibles. And we were going to hand deliver 163 of these Talking Bibles to the Aroma people there in Ethiopia. And we found out about two days prior to leaving that the Ethiopian government mandated all international travelers, travelers incoming quarantine for seven days, which would have made it impossible for us to do what it is that we needed to do. So we decided to postpone. That's two things there that come into play. One is we're still going to prioritize getting those talking Bibles. So we raised the money for that. We're still going to get those specific Bibles We've packed them, and we're going to ship them off to Ethiopia, and they're going to begin to distribute and create those listening groups. Again, over 3,000 lives are going to be impacted for the sake of Jesus Christ just through those Bibles alone. And then Paul and I will then venture together later this year and do follow-up with where those Bibles landed, the people groups that have been spending time listening to God's Word for the very first time uh, so we're still going there this year. I'm excited to still have that opportunity. So be praying that all the uh, details and logistics will be worked out. But because I wasn't supposed to be here, I had set up uh, to have a good friend of mine come and speak to you, Tim Magnuson. Now, Tim, for those of you who may not be aware, Tim came last year when we did our services outside uh, during the month of June. We did a series called Binge Reading the Bible. And we had Tim specifically come and speak to the historical books in the Bible because his, his brain is much bigger than mine when it comes to those aspects of God's Word. And uh, he just did a killer job. I heard so many wonderful things, and I'm like, we got to get Tim back. So now I'm blessed because I get to be here and listen to his message just like you guys. So without further ado, please welcome Tim Magnuson. morning, North Haven. Uh, <clears throat> during the first service, and we said a couple times in second service, but people would generally say, if I'm not familiar to you or if you don't know who I am, they would introduce themselves. And it's like, that's great, except in reality, you, you shouldn't know who I am. So I'm going to change it a little bit. If you do know who I am, you have a great memory, or please stop stalking me. I can't deal with it anymore. Uh, beyond that, Adam made a comment about his kids having five first days of school, and uh, I have three kids, seven, five, and three years old, and my kids are kind of permanently homeschooled. We made that decision a while ago. And the funny thing is, I heard my wife say at least five times this year, this is the last day of school ever. So I, I, it's a bit of a different transition, but I, I can understand the parental tensions that exist. I would like to say before I get started, uh, in terms of the whole kids' ministries, obviously this is not my home church, but I do have kids and I grew up starting as a kid, so I have some experience on this. And the church I grew up in was fairly similar to this one. It was founded about the same time. I was talking with somebody today who goes here. The layout of the old part of the building is almost identical. Same number of rooms, the hallways in the same places. And I know from my experience, kids' ministries matter. 
because I got to be a part of one for a very, very long time. And the reason why it's important to me is not because there was one incredibly awesome teacher that did everything for us, but because there were a lot of people in that church who were a part of it. And the truth is, a lot of them were really, really poor teachers, but they were there. There's one in particular, her name is Gail Anderson, and I was uh, five or six years old in a, a program called Awana. They had a Cubbies program. And uh, 30 years later, she's still Mrs. Cubby, and I'm still her Cubby Bear. <laughs> it's true. That is a true story. The only one I'll t- No, no, see, not the only one. But that is a true story. She is still my Cubby leader, and I, she, I am still her Cubby Bear. And she was not a good teacher. She was meant very well, but that's kind of where it ended. But she cared. And that's what stuck with me 30 years later is that's why she's still Mrs. Cubby is because she cared when I was five or six. I don't remember a single story she told. I assume she did most of the ones that are familiar to us. But I know that she loved me and she cared about me. And so my encouragement to you is you're not a good storyteller. That's fine. Who cares? The kids don't but the kids care that you care. And as somebody who grew up in a church and remembers that and now has kids, I just want to stress from somebody who's not a part of this congregation, it really is important because it does impact people going forward. Uh, As we start this morning, I do want to say thank you to Adam and and to your your church here. Uh, I feel incredibly blessed to be back. Um, I was talking with somebody this morning that this place feels familiar. It feels good to be here. It's not a strange environment. It's not a strange group of people. It feels connected and and well put together. And I feel like this is a place that whenever I have visited, it goes, "Ah, I like this. So I feel very fortunate and blessed to be here. Uh, I want to start with prayer, and then we're going to dive into a topic that I think is a little bit different, uh, but hopefully motivational and, and, and enlightening. So let's just start with prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day. I I thank you for the opportunity to be here, for the people here at North Haven who have uh, so graciously allowed me to be here, and for the ways that it's obvious that you are are working in and through them, Um, from seeing the different Bibles that are being sent, the kids' ministries, the programs, the the, just the the boxes that are back by the kitchen overflowing with different items. Um, I pray that you would bless North Haven and its people, its pastors, its leaders, that you would shine favorably on them and that they would be a people who uh, continue to make, make movement in their community and for the kingdom of God. So I pray that what we do and say today would bring honor and glory to you, that we would put Jesus in his rightful place as king of all of us and that you would develop a, a deeper faith and allegiance from us. Amen. Thank you. So we are clearly in the first week after Easter and if you've been a part of the church community for very long, you know immediately that this week is different. It's almost like <sighs> we're through. I was told by Adam that there's no series that's being done. There's no particular topic. Have free reign. Uh, and the thing is, I usually struggle in the week after Easter. And it's not because I don't care about Easter. It's actually the opposite. I love Easter but in like a weird, he needs to scale it down sort of way. I'm the kind of guy who I want to make paper mache tombs and fill them with Easter eggs instead of Easter baskets kind of guy. I'm the kind of guy that I would rather give gifts at Easter than at Christmas. 
I'm the guy that I want my church to buy fireworks and set them off because I think it's the biggest day that we could possibly have. Now, I understand that there are two, right? Christmas and Easter are tied together. For me, it's Easter. It has been. It probably all, I hope it always will be. But Easter is for me the, the seminal moment of everything that matters in my life. And in that, I find that things just get weird, not, not in, a, in an after-Easter setting, not post-Easter, like not post-Christian, post-truth, but an after, a, a post-timeline Easter. I texted with a buddy of mine who works at the church I go to, and he was saying that he's finally getting time off this week after four weeks just running straight through. I assume many of the staff here have been able to scale back a little bit this week, and the preparation hours and the dedication have maybe scaled back a little bit. Now, they don't care but that the lead-up to Easter is so tough. And in thinking about that, my first thought was, what does this look like for a church in that week after Easter? What did that first week after Easter actually look like? We're really good at fitting in where we are now because we've been a part of the story of Christianity over time. We've, we've been a part of understanding. And if you were here in June... You'll remember uh, that I said that I'm a huge history fan. I love, I, I love history, particularly Greek history, Roman history, and early Christianity and the development. And one of the things that has come out of that is it's made me wonder and, and spent a lot of time in the last six months to year wondering what does Easter look like? What would it look like in its original form? Because so much of what we know today has been shaped over the, the most recent 2,000 years. See, our shared faith today is it's large and it's robust. And as I was driving here today, I passed dozens of churches, steeples all over the place. And the fact is that over the last 2,000 years or so, many of these topics have been wrestled through by men and women, some of them for centuries, and some are still being battled over these things. But I want to go to a time kind of before that. I want to go to a time when we really don't think about except to point out a fault. And I want to talk about Thomas. And I want us to talk about, for Thomas, what became a faith that moved him? What's a faith that moves us? See, for most of history, Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas. But I want to reframe that today. I want to take this opportunity to maybe reframe that. Instead, I want to propose a new name for Thomas. I want to propose that Thomas will be known as Allegiant Thomas going forward. See, I read a book recently that was talking about how the Greek word for faith is, faith is kind of a narrow definition that when you blow out what the term faith looks like, it looks less like mental saying yes to Jesus and more of I'm all in. It looks less like checking a box and more like a doing action. That if we could reframe the word faith today, it would look more like what we would call allegiance, that we would pledge allegiance to King Jesus versus having faith in him. So when Paul writes, I live my life by faith in the Son of God, he actually is saying, I live my life by complete allegiance to Jesus. And I think that's what Thomas has. So I want to get, we're going to start with Thomas, and we're going to start with a couple of places in the book of John. We're going to be mostly in the book of John today. So Thomas is not what would be considered an important part of the Jesus story by any measure. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he only shows up one time in any of those, and it's a passing to the listing of the twelve. The first time Thomas actually gets any sort of uh, FaceTime, if you will, is in the book of John. And the first time it, uh, he ever appears is actually in the book of John, chapter 11. And if you're familiar with the Bible and the book of John, this is the passage of Lazarus. And what we get there is 
uh, when we get into this time, like I said, he's not an integral part. He shows up on this random scene. He has a random comment. And he's probably a lot like many of us, right? He has a moment or two of absolute brilliance where we do something stellar and nail it. And then we turn around and we face plant. And we think the face plant is kind of the defining moment of what happens. But see, I want to focus instead on three areas where Thomas actually shines and then use that as a springboard to see what it means for us. So the three areas where Thomas comes through is in Thomas's commitment, it's in his confession, and then ultimately it's in his allegiance. And see, I think Thomas is actually a perfect example of this because we don't get a ton of time with him, but there's enough there if we read between the lines to show that he actually has a really good track record. So the first point is we're going to be in John chapter 11, and his line comes up in verse 16. And what he says is, so Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go with him that we may die with him. On its surface, this is an incredibly morbid and pessimistic view. But I think we need to take a step back and understand where Thomas's commitment comes from and where his fear comes from. So Thomas is committed to the Jesus story, but when he's saying this, as opposed to just simply being a statement of, well, let's just go and get it over with already, I think instead it's him realizing that there's a real sense of fear in what's happening. See, what's going on in chapter 11 is Lazarus has died, and what we're told by Matthew in chapter 26 is that when Jesus is at Bethany, he actually has dinner with a man named Simon the leper. If you know anything about leprosy, leprosy was uh, a horrible disease. I spoke with somebody this morning who told me that uh, in the first service I said that it was a painful disease. It's actually incorrect. It actually, there's no pain apparently with, with it because it attacks your nervous system. But limbs would uh, get, you'd cut yourself and not realize it. You'd get something in your, a rock in your shoe and not realize you'd wear yourself out. You'd get something in your eye and not realize that you had a, an infection in your eye. It was a disease that slowly tore the body apart. So what you have is a place called Bethany where the leper is living. And what that means is that Bethany is most likely a leper colony. See, the Jewish people had specific places where the people who had leprosy had to go and live. Set apart from society, set apart from the temple and synagogue and their congregation, their people. They were completely removed and isolated, left to be only among those who also had leprosy. I think what Thomas is saying here is when he says, let us go also that we may die with him, what he's saying is, I'm willing to follow Jesus into this leper colony, and that, that means my death. Leprosy meant death. I think this is the start of Thomas's commitment to Jesus. The first time we get his example is when Thomas is fully committed to walking into the face of death with Jesus. Now, see, like I said, this is either incredibly morbid or it's pessimistic. And I think what we actually don't realize is that this is Thomas to a T. He has those slight statements that once you say it, you probably go, ooh, that was too sarcastic. Yeah, I could have tweaked that a little bit better. But in this situation, he understands the gravity of what's happening, is that going with Jesus is going to cost him probably pretty severely. The second place we find Thomas is going to be in John chapter 14. And this is another place where he has a commitment to Jesus. And so he says back to Jesus, so this is a situation where Jesus is saying like he kind of has to leave and depart and that he's going to prepare a home for his disciples that he'll come back and he'll, he'll take them to be with them. And so Thomas responds to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
And I think this is a place where it looks like Thomas is doubting, but I think if we actually understand a first century context, it'll help us a bit. In the first century, in Greco-Roman society, it was very, very common for a wealthy man to send either his eldest son or his chief servant or slave across the seas or across the regions to do business on his behalf. In a first century world, it'd be very common for that representative to be there and to seal the deal and then essentially have to say, I need to go back and get my master's final approval or appeal or or, um, stamp of approval. So I think that what Thomas is understanding here is that what Jesus is saying is, I'm here now doing the work, but I kind of have to go back and get my father's final approval. I have to go back and and be away and, and come back, and then I'll come back and I'll get it. I'll seal the deal when I come back. I think what Thomas is actually saying instead is, no, I'd rather go with you to be with you when the deal is sealed. I want to be with you the whole time. I don't need to wait until you come back to be a part of this. Now, I don't think Thomas fully understood what Jesus was getting at here because it's clear that Jesus is talking about some time between when he died and he eventually comes back, or he's ascended and then eventually comes back. I think there's something going on here that Thomas misses. But in the moment, I'm willing to bet that Thomas is making a statement about what his commitment looks like to Jesus rather than saying, we're never going to be with you. I'm panicky. I don't think that's Thomas here. So with this being said, those are the two places that the Gospels appear and have Thomas have any sort of face time. I think both of those can be seen as him basing his commitment on it, which then leads us back into John chapter 20. And this is where we get Thomas's confession. And the situation is set up where post-resurrection, Jesus appears to a number of his disciples, and we're told in John 20 that Thomas isn't with them. So the other disciples tell Thomas, he's risen, he's here, he's alive. And Thomas completely understandably doubts them. And he makes the comment that until I put my hands in his feet and his side, I'm not going to believe. Which I think is another example that we get from Thomas before of, oh, you maybe didn't want to say that. But he did. So we show up in John chapter 20, uh, verses 26 and 29. I'm going to read it. So eight days later, after Jesus first appeared, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hands and place them in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas answered, and he said, my Lord and my God, And Jesus said, you have believed because you have seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. The two parts I want to focus on are the phrase, my Lord and my God. We're going to start with my Lord, because this is, this could be taken one of two ways. The first way is, uh, it's a very common phrase in first century um, late Roman, Greco-Roman society to refer to anybody who was a superior as Lord, presumably somebody who was also um, your you're better in something. So routinely, you'll find people in the Bible being called Lord when they're not a God figure, divine figure. You'll find uh, throughout first century, second century, third century texts, references to leaders, masters, Caesars, governors, kings being referred to as Lord. So I think what Thomas is doing here is Thomas is referring to Jesus having Jesus's rightful place as Thomas's sort of earthly, human, mortal master. And then he has the other phrase, my God. I think this is the part that nails it. This is the linchpin of Thomas's argument, is that when it all comes down to it, a good first century Jewish man did not call anybody God except for Yahweh himself. 
For Thomas to be saying both my Lord and my God meant that Thomas was putting Jesus back in his rightful place. And I think there's a bit of wonder in what Thomas is saying, a bit of, a bit of over, being overwhelmed in the presence of Jesus, a bit of understanding that this Jesus character is more than just a man. He is a Lord and he is God. But that also ties together with the confession And I think when the two pieces align, you have the my Lord and my God, the the wonder and the belief of this, you have a difference, and that difference becomes allegiance. See, allegiance is not something that is easily lost or gained. And Thomas is very similar to the rest of his disciples in that he was with Jesus for most of his ministry, and when things got tough, they abandoned. There were very few people left with Jesus at the cross, notably the women, and maybe a a passing by by one of the disciples, but most of them fled. And what happens is that after this moment with Thomas, Thomas is a completely different character. All of the disciples are. See, Thomas went from being a follower to becoming a fanatic. And this is the type of faith that I think Jesus wants to promote and develop in each one of us today, a faith that is so dedicated that people would mistake it as blind allegiance. Thomas's allegiance actually took him to his death. Uh, legend says that Thomas was the first person to ever take the story of Jesus to the subcontinent of India, and that he was martyred there in the year 72 AD. Even to this day, there are still people in India who trace their legacy of being Christians back to Thomas. And so what I want to ask you today is, what, where is our wonder? Where is our confession? Where is our allegiance? Because if you remember Easter, Easter is where everything changed. And now we're one week later, and are we back in the here we go again. Have we lost the wonder that was so provoked in us last week? See, like most of Christianity, we've become steeped in the language of, of culture, of just what it means to be Christian, but we've missed the message and the wonder that Easter should provoke in us. Easter should be a moment where we have to take a step back and just go, wait, what are you asking me to believe? That, that a man was crucified and resurrected? That is an outlandishly absurd claim, and yet it's one that I fully believe with my entire essence. I hope to never lose the wonder that says that my God was nailed to a tree. That is a statement that should provoke wonder in us. And then that beyond that, that that not just that he was killed, but this is the universal king, the king that Genesis tells us spoke all into being with a single word. He became flesh and and submitted into the darkest realities that any of us could fathom. And then he went through that and defeated death and now has risen to new life and is reigning and waiting for his rightful time to come back. This is a story that should provoke continual wonder inside of us. It's that's the wonder that we should never lose, the wonder of Easter that should never diminish in its power. And that we should also be people who, like Thomas, are willing to say readily and easily, my Lord and my God. When the wonder of Easter and Thomas's confession line up, allegiance is what comes out of that. You cannot possibly be in wonder and awe of the Jesus of the Easter story and confess him to be Lord and God and not find yourself radically devoted to him. And see, what this means is that Jesus is going to take precedence in our lives in every area. It means that the things that we want are going to be submitted to him as rightful king. It's going to be politics and finances, 
our devotion and our relationships. It's going to be the way we spend our time on Sunday morning when kids' ministry needs it. It's going to be the things that I don't want to do that Jesus is calling me into that gets sacrificed because my allegiance to him supersedes my own desires. See, when we have a proper wonder and proper confession, they will unite to create an allegiance to King Jesus that is so radical, so pronounced, and so different that we're completely changed. And so today, I want, to, I want to implore you, I want to, to encourage you to kind of rediscover that wonder that initially made you fall in love with Jesus. Because the longer you're a follower of Jesus, the easier it is to get complacent, but it's also just as easy to rediscover that because he is a God that immensely and eternally will provoke wonder and worship from us. I want us to be people that enter into that earliest confession that Thomas had of my Lord and my God and to allow those simple words to provoke an allegiance to Jesus that will drive and move you forward, that will provoke North Haven to be even more of, of a force for the kingdom of God. See, allegiance will move us to act in ways that submit to Jesus and then follow through on our call to reach the world around us. There's not much else that Jesus calls us to do but to bear his good news out. The confession of my Lord and my God is the springboard for that. So as I end today, or today, I want to end with a quote from uh, a man named Gregory of Nazianzus. He was a fourth-century priest, uh, bishop, church father. Uh, he's known in church history as Gregory the Theologian. And he wrote, this is called his Oration Number 1, and it's, it was given to his people, his congregation, on Easter Sunday. And a little bit of context, he was in a very large, wealthy, and prosperous city, and he was the type of pastor who uh, saw most of his congregants, especially the wealthy and rich ones, once a year, maybe twice, Easter and Christmas. He was in a place where uh, the poor were routinely oppressed by the rich. And so he's a man who would start homeless shelters. He's the man, uh, one of him and him and his compadres, uh, they were actually people who started trying to get away with or do away with slavery in the third and fourth centuries, way before it actually happened. This is a man who was forward-thinking and willing to call out the people around him. And so what he writes to his people is he says, Yesterday I was crucified with Christ, and today I am glorified with him. Yesterday I died with him, and today I am alive with him. Yesterday I was buried with him, and today I rise. So then let us offer to him who suffered and rose again all. Because now you may think I want your money, or your, or your 401ks, or your bonds, or your tapestries, or your paintings. Because no, those are all just passing trinkets. What we should give is we should give ourselves. We should give these things back to the one who made us, because we are the possession that he desires. So let us give back to the one who made us in his image. Let us recognize our dignity and honor the archetype. Let us know the power of the mystery of Easter and for what Christ died. Let us become like Christ since Christ became like us. Let us become gods for Christ's sake since he for our sake became man. He took on that which was worse that he would give us that which is eternally better. He became poor that we through his poverty might be rich. He took upon himself the form of a slave that we would earn back or that we would win back our liberty. He, be, he came down that we might be exalted. He was tempted so that we could conquer. He was dishonored so that he might glorify us. 
He died that he might save us. He ascended so that he would draw all people to himself, all of us who are lying low in sin. So then let us give all, offer all to him who gave himself a ransom for us. See, I think Gregory is calling his people then 1,600 years ago and to us today to be people who are allegiant, to be people who are having a faith that is so full of wonder at the Easter story and commitment and confession to the statement that Jesus is Lord, that we have a radical allegiance to King Jesus. So as I pray, I want you to ask Jesus with me that, that he would expose in your heart the places where you're not allegiant the place where maybe you've lost the wonder of Easter. You've lost the ability to make the simple confession that Jesus is both my Lord and my God. So we're going to pray, and then we'll have the the music team come back up. So, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity this morning. I thank you for the privilege of being here at North Haven, for the community that you have. I thank you for the people that have been here. And I, I pray that you would help what was said and done today to bring honor and glory to King Jesus, and that we would be people that develop an allegiance to him that goes beyond Sunday morning in the pews and giving of our money, but we'd be people that become dedicated to the cause in such a way that it is clear that we are different. There would be people that when Jesus looks down on us, he sees they are my followers and I know them, and that we are people who are readily and willing to say, my Lord and my God. I pray, God, that you would bless this congregation, bless its pastors, its leaders, its teachers. I pray you would bless its people who are here, the people that have yet to be reached, that you would make the area around here ready and willing for the story and message of Jesus, and that you would be with North Haven as they reach their community and people around them. So I thank you for these people. I ask once again that you would bless them. Thank you for this opportunity, and we pray that Jesus would be high and lifted up. Amen.